Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Stephen Gunyan. Simon Brown from Just One Lap in studio today to share his wisdom on all that's happening on global markets. Then in the second part of the show, Sohail Suleiman, Portfolio Manager, Coronation Fund Managers, takes us through their Global Emerging Markets Fund. All that coming your way shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making the headlines. Well, Morgan Stanley has cut Samsung's stock rating to equal weight, citing concerns that the boom in memory chips is peaking. The tech giant shares buckled about 4% to a one-month low. Higher demand for more firepower in servers and smartphones was the main cause of Samsung's record third-quarter profit. The U.S. Department of Justice is suing AT&T for its $85 billion bid for media conglomerates, Time Warner. It's being cited as one of the largest antitrust cases from Washington in decades. And deep discounts, free gifts, in-store entertainment and mild weather drew bargain hunters to U.S. stores on Black Friday, but many decided to shop online instead. Take a look at this report on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. U.S. stores offered deep discounts, entertainment and free gifts to draw bargain hunters on Black Friday. Harriet Petty came to Best Buy in Manhattan. Yeah, we just saved about $200 on buying a new iPad Pro um, with the pen and the keyboard as well, so it's a pretty good deal. But many shoppers went to stores only to check out items and get better deals online. According to Adobe Analytics, Americans spend almost $3 billion on Thanksgiving, and they will spend more than $6 billion on Cyber Monday. Adobe's Mickey Miracle. This Black Friday is off to a great start. We've had a strong holiday season all season long, and Black Friday is no exception. We're um, actually projecting the day to come in at $5 billion, which will be the biggest Black Friday online ever. Shares of Amazon, Macy's, and Kohl's rose on early signs that consumers will spend more this holiday shopping season than in previous years. The period between Thanksgiving and Christmas can make or break a retailer, accounting for as much as 40% of annual revenue. Just one lap joining me at the desk. And Simon, I saw you snigger when I said you were here to share your wisdom with us. I also saw you tweeting on Friday that the best way to save money on Black Friday and Cyber Money was to keep your credit card in your wallet. Good evening, Stephen. Absolutely. That lady bought a Wi-Fi probe. I'm not sure <laughs> what that is. So, 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 my colleague did, so, so my colleague did it the smart way. She needed something. She wants a sofa. She'd identified the sofa three or four weeks ago. And on Friday, she logged in and saw that the place that she wanted it had it at 2,000 Rand cheaper. So she did save. So she did actually save. It was quantifiably something that she wanted. I, of course, had nothing planned, so I just stayed offline. You know, it's that gimmick, you know, like, oh, you saved 200 rand. No, you didn't. You just spent 500. <laughs> and oftentimes on something you didn't actually need. So if you're smart about it, you, you can make some money. Mm. or save some money. I, I know that it has taken off in South Africa for some reason. I, I can't fathom why. But it, it, it's very important in the United States because it does show the start of the holiday shopping season. And as that report said, lots of the retailers make 40% of their revenue between now and Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a massive skew, of course, to the year end in, 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 in Western economies where Christmas plays a big role in it. Um, and, and it's huge. I mean, the, you know, the five billion odd going through. I mean, we're talking big numbers. Of course, Singles Day in China, we spoke about a few weeks ago, that, you know, Alibaba did 25 billion US yeah. dollars. Um, and I think South Africa is still some way to go. My question is, is that how much of your shopping are you shifting from, from you know, the next sort of 
four weeks between now and Christmas. In other words, you haven't created more revenue. You've just moved that revenue around a bit. Um, and how much of it is, as my colleague did, really, you're actually selling couches at, at 2,000 Rand lower, a couch you were going to be selling anyway. She needed a couch. She had identified which one to buy. So I think when the math unravels, I suppose it's good for retailers. I'm not sure that you know there's enough to get massively excited and say, well, let's all go buy whatever because they've had a great Black Friday. Have you, have you seen a noticeable shift from physical retailers with stores to online retailers? Because we have seen a lot more money being spent on Cyber Money Monday than on Black Friday. So would you be looking at online retailers as the really big winners from this? So I, we absolutely have. But then in the last couple of weeks, I've seen a few interesting data points around Walmart and Amazon. So the one I saw today is that Walmart used to be the average uh, Walmart price was an average 3% more than Amazon. And that's fairly chunky, you know, particularly in a, in a country with an inflation of, of you know, one, one in a bit. But that, that is now narrowed to 0.3. In other words, Walmart's almost price for price on with Amazon. Mm -hmm. And if you look at those last set of numbers for Walmart, they're actually doing fairly well, considering. I mean, they still got, you know, challenges. Mar margins under pressure, though? Margins under pressure and a lot of their growth obviously coming from the online. So, in a sense, you know, Walmart bricks and mortars doing okay, margins under pressure, doing hundreds of billions of, of, of revenue during the, during the period. But but the bigger picture seems to be that even where Walmart's winning, it's in that online space. It's, it's the convenience of it all. It's the, you know, the ability to, to, to compare prices and, and, and products and, and get reviews and stuff like that, which a top-end retailer back in the day who could help you, you know, when we still had sales assistance, they could help that process. But these days, I think the online offers a lot more convenience, price, uh, and, and, and you know, researchability. So you wouldn't write off brick and mortar retailers as long as they do have that online presence? I think online is incredibly important and I think there's always, I mean, I, I don't think brick and mortar is going to disappear. Um, I think it's just going to have a harder time in it. I think it's going to have to be cleverer in the process. Um, and let's take books for an example. We're in a, a purple patch with all the books in South Africa at the moment. But you know, the, the obvious and clever thing to do is to, well, you've got a book, let's do some launches. Let's get some, some foot traffic into the store. You can't just sort of st sit up on High Street and wait for people to come for you. I think what we're seeing more and more, though, is that maybe you've got a, a brick-and-mortar presence, um, and that's perhaps you know, useful to you, but that a lot of your business is done in that online environment. Mm. Well, let's move from books to magazines, and Meredith Corporation <laughs> is buying Time, Inc., um, which, of course, has people, Sports Illustrated, and Fortune. Do people still buy those magazines and read them? Well, they do, obviously, in ways smaller numbers than they used to. And advertising is tougher to get to because there's, you know, and the advertising dollars going online, Facebook, Google, and the like. But it, to a degree, it comes to the earlier point, which is that, you know, a good business at the right price. And, and yes, we can call these, you know, they're, they're, I mean, are they sunset? To a degree, they are. Obviously, they all have online presences and they in many cases are still trying to work out how they truly sort of monetize that 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 that, that online and you know websites and the like but no business is, is necessarily absolutely obsolete there will come a time you know a hundred years ago you know doing horseshoes was a big business and now it's it's completely niche and hardly used but at the right price there's always someone to buy almost anything I suppose uh, uh, Jeff Bezos took a big stake in Washington Post just uh, what a couple of years ago mm -hmm. uh, how, how much that was you know more just him being sort of you know philanthropical rather than a, a business decision we're not sure but the right business if you can get the price for it perhaps is attractive even if profits are not what they used to be Okay, um, AT&T, um, US Department of Justice, trying to squash its uh, acquisition of Time Warner. Um, 
And I'm not quite sure why, because this is a vertically integrated deal, so it's not buying a competitor necessarily. It isn't, although, I mean, on the campaign trail, Donald Trump was quite uh, vociferous that he wouldn't allow this deal to go ahead. Um, and there has been a, a fair bit of, of, of concerns and, 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 and uh, uh, the like in, in, in the U.S., around some of the bigger mergers, particularly in, in, in the telco space. Although, you know, we saw Verizon get AOL, we saw them also take Yahoo. Again, the, the argument being made, well, you know, they, they, they're, they're not in the same space. Yes, one provides the, the sort of the backbone, the other provides the platform, but it's not, it's, it's not going to reduce competition in the sense of, of, of telcos or, or internet providers yeah. or the like. So maybe it's just a case of more than anything, just sort of you know, stamping down. Mm. Do you think um, AT&T is going to get this deal through or do you think it will be blocked? <sighs> I think there's probably a lot of more lawyers' hours to get billed. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and then once the lawyers have, have sort of got their way going, then it's all around the, the, the folks who who sort of trying to you know, get the Congress people to, to vote on their side. Lobbyists, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, I, I think it's probably not. I think it probably is going to maybe get stamped out. But there's going to be a lot more fight to go before it, it, it dies one way or the other. Oh, another one of Donald Trump's fights, and that's the U.S. tax bill. And uh, this has kept uh, investors a bit nervous for the last few weeks. Um, do you think it's going to get voted this week? So there certainly is a push, the big push is to get it by Christmas. There's a big pressure from Congress to be seen to be doing, from, from uh, President Trump to be seen to be doing. Um, they're hoping to vote on it this week. And that really depends if they can get enough votes in the Senate. They, they're going to do a roll call. Um, and they need 50 because if they get 50 and then they can get uh, Vice President Pence to step up and, and vote the, do that, that casting vote and, and swing it their way. So it really is at this point, it's about horse trading. It's, you know, and we less about the what will the tax rate be, what will company tax rate be. It's a lot of sort of the, the earmarks and, and those sort of bits and pieces that get stuck into it that, that that's really going to make the difference, which is, which is unfortunate. You, know, you want that debate to be around tax and, and tax reform and policy mm -hmm. and, and the like. But this is very much, I suspect, how politics works pretty much around the world. Okay. Um, the UK to reprivatise the Royal Bank of Scotland, and I think it's pumped more than forty-five billion pounds into the Royal RBS, and that was during the financial crisis. So it's been a shareholder since the financial crisis, and it's going to sell those shares for a lot less than it paid for them. Yeah, so you're feeling quite done over if you were yeah. an, an, a British taxpayer because you've you've essentially paid for this. I think the the the, the, the bigger issue is. What if they hadn't? What if they had said to RBS, okay, cool, collapse, let's not, you know, 2008, which was now almost 10 years ago, was a very, very tough period and, and was saved in census, Northern Rock and others that got saved. And I can't help wondering if we hadn't, and I, you know, the British taxpayers are not going to be happy about it, but I think that the, the alternative, I think, was markedly worse. If we were allowing giant banks to start going under, then things would have got really, really ugly. And they were already very, very ugly. And of course, the government does need the £15 billion it's going to get for that two-thirds of its stake. Yeah, I mean, they might be, you know, taking it a loss, but, you know, that, that's a nice bit of chump of change in, in an economy that's struggling and, and will certainly make the exchequer a little bit happier when it's budget time. Yeah, particularly around. as you're trying to um, barter your way out of Brexit well, yes. or into <laughs> Brexit. We're going to a, a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be looking at Coronation's Emerging Markets Fund. Stay with us for that. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investors. Still with me in studio, Simon Brown from Just One Lap. We're joined on the line by Sohail Suleiman to chat about the Coronation Emerging Markets Fund. Um, Sohail, thanks very much for joining us. So um, if you're buying the Coronation Emerging Markets Fund, what are you investing into? Uh, I mean, it's, 
It's a global emerging markets fund. So what we try and do is give investors exposure to what we think are the best ideas uh, in our ideal coverage list amongst the whole of emerging markets. I think most people invested in emerging markets are exposed largely to uh, index-biased fund managers. And as you know, Coronation is very bottom-up focused. We build completely clean slate portfolios. So you'll notice in our, in our, in our fact sheet uh, that not only do we look very different from the index, but we also have a far more concentrated portfolio. The top 10 are typically mid-40s. Uh, percentage of fund and the top 20 mid 60 percentage of fund obviously it's very different from a, a very dilute index um, obviously in South Africa we have a much more concentrated index uh, so the portfolio comprises what we think are the best businesses in emerging markets uh, with the most upside on a risk adjusted basis so you know the, the best business in, in emerging markets bought at the wrong price will be a poor investment, and also the cheapest business in emerging markets is not going to be necessarily a 10% position in the fund. Mm. You do say in the fact sheet that you invest in emerging markets are also uh, companies listed in developed markets that have exposure to emerging markets. How much exposure should they have to an emerging market before you can consider them for the fund? Uh, and you do talk about in your quarterly commentary that you added Airbus. So it'd be interesting to know what portion of Airbus's revenue comes from emerging markets as opposed to developed markets. Sure, I mean, I'd maybe just to take a step back, uh, you know, the thinking behind this uh, is, is that when you're investing in an emerging markets fund, you, you want exposure to the good things that are happening in emerging markets. And that doesn't always mean that you're buying stocks that are listed in emerging markets simply because something um, like Samsung, for example, makes the vast majority of its profits uh, outside of emerging markets, either in North America, Western Europe, or in the whole market of Korea, which is quite developed in nature. So we wanted to broaden the investment horizon to be able to capture um, particularly multinationals, uh, which might be listed in the U.S. or the U.K., uh, but have significant exposure to emerging markets because what you're really getting there is exposure to the underlying EM consumer, which you might not be able to get directly from those individual markets just because they don't exist or because the companies that are listed are very expensive. Uh, to qualify, a company must earn at least 40% of its revenue or profits from emerging markets. And when we started this fund uh, just under a decade ago, uh, there were very few that met that criteria over time. Uh, probably one or two multinationals every year are, are meeting that criteria. And, and typically because Western Europe and North America are growing at low single digits and emerging markets are growing at, let's say, mid-teens, the percentage exposure has gradually gone north of 40% year after year to the extent where some of them are between 60 and 70% of earnings coming from emerging markets. So, hey, look, yeah. so Simon yeah. here, your yeah. second biggest holding at the end of this quarter, JD.com. Uh, I think everyone, when we think China, we know Alibaba. I think few folks have heard about JD. What's your preference on, on, on JD.com as opposed to the, the, the typically loved uh, Alibaba? Uh, it's not necessarily just a preference for JD.com. We, we do own Alibaba in the fund. It's a much smaller position. So the, the difference in position sizes is reflective of valuation. We think JD.com is... Um, has much more upside from its current share price, whereas Alibaba is a bit more fully valued. So Alibaba is around 2.5% of fund versus JD, which you can see is much bigger. Uh, the two business models are very different. JD is much similar, much more similar in business model to Amazon. So they own inventory, uh, they control the consumer experience, um, but they're also earlier along the development curve. So they've spent the, last, the better part of the last three or four years 
uh, building out their distribution network since they IPO'd in, in early 2014, uh, whereas Alibaba, of course, has been around for, for much longer. Uh, but we do think that from a share price upside perspective, JD.com is more attractive, and also we think the business model is inherently a little bit more robust over the long term because you engage with the consumer, you have uh, you know, the biggest retailers tend to have better buying powers from suppliers, uh, and then you have that virtuous cycle of being able to offer better, better prices to the consumer, so they come back to you, which increases your buying power, and that circle continues over time. So I didn't mention earlier, you asked about Airbus's emerging market revenue. It's roughly 55% of revenue comes from emerging markets, which is why it qualifies for the fund. Okay. Um, so, Hel, uh, do, do you tend to follow themes as well within the fund? Because um, I noticed in the third quarter, you did particularly well from Brazilian education companies, from Chinese internet stocks, and from Russian, I suppose, consumer-facing companies such as Magnet, X5 Retail, and also Sparabank. So are, those, are these themes that you, you tend to pick up on and follow? Well, we, we, we tend to focus on what we consider to be average or above-average businesses because there's a lot out there in emerging markets uh, which we think you, you cannot have a very high level of conviction on what they're going to earn 10 or 15 years from now. And our, our, our valuation approach is very much premised on working out normal earnings in a normal cycle many years from now and then valuing that today. It's no different from what we do in South Africa, but obviously the investment universe is much, much larger. Now, because of that preference for average and above average businesses, uh, you would tend to find that it would be businesses with um, certain characteristics, uh, typically those that face the consumer uh, or with uh, intrinsic qualities which we find very attractive. And education would be one of them. In a country like Brazil, there's a massive shortage of education, very poor government, um, uh, well, insufficient places in government universities relative to the number of people who graduate every year and a, a very good private for-profit for education sector. And these shares have been very well valued over the last couple of years because they've behaved uh, like they're very poor businesses in Brazil from a share price perspective because the macro environment has, has taken all the Brazilian shares down. Um, in, in, in Russia, for example, we like food retailers. It's a very fragmented industry. There's a couple of big players which are expanding nationally, uh, growing their profits, consolidating the market. And we, we've seen historically what that's done in other countries 10, 15, 20 years ago, much like South Africa and, and earlier back in the UK, for example. So, I mean, you, you mentioned your, your, your bottom-up. In other words, you're not going to go and say, right, we like Brazil, let's find a Brazilian stock. My sense is you will go digging around Brazil, and if you find stocks you like, you invest in it. That must give you a giant universe. I'm thinking for you know, your colleagues who manage the local funds have got, you know, 400 stocks, and in fact, with liquidity, maybe 100 stocks that are investable. Your universe must run into thousands, if not potentially tens of thousands of, of potential stocks that you could invest in. How do you manage that and filter that down? Well, I think the most important thing to, to note is that, you know, that we, we're much more focused on areas of commission. So what we own, we want to make sure we get right. There'll be plenty that we miss that goes up 20, 30, 40 percent. Um, but typically those won't hurt us because the index is very dilute. In South Africa, if you don't own NASPERS and NASPERS goes up 50 percent, you, I mean, you, you're dead in the water. Uh, whereas in emerging markets, the largest index exposure is sort of four to five percent, and then it, you know, it falls up quite quickly then. So you can afford to focus on um, a coverage list of 200 to 300 stocks 
of businesses which you think have got good long-term intrinsic uh, fundamentals. And as long as you own a portfolio of 50 to 50 names amongst that and you get most of those right, you'll probably outperform the index over meaningful periods of time. Having said that, in the short term, it can take uh, it can have a big impact on your performance. Uh, if you go back two years ago, we had a large exposure to Brazil. The Brazilian stock fell dramatically during the, the macro crisis that happened there, and the currency fell off a lot against the dollar. So we, we were we did quite poorly on a rolling 12-month basis in 2014, 2015, uh, and a large part of that has reversed. Uh, uh, not because we did anything particularly different, but because over the long term, the fundamentals of those businesses uh, exerted themselves. Mm. I mean, you mentioned Nasper, um, Simon, we were chatting before the show because that is the biggest holding in the fund. Um, and that's, I don't know if that's deliberate or just a happenstance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a factor of it. You know, what do you do when you've got a stock, Nasper is up 100% this year? And a as an investor, it always troubles me. You know, in, in my story, it's Capitech rather than Nasper. You're now selling your, your, your winner or you become uh, massively overweight. Solomon, do you, in, in Nasper, I mean, it's it had a spectacular 2017. Have you guys been selling it to keep it within a weight or have you just let it grow and become your biggest holding? No, I mean, it was the biggest holding at the beginning of the year. So if you look at what we've done over the course of the year with what the share price has done, obviously in dollar terms, it's up by not as much in, as it is in rand terms. But, you know, if we'd done nothing, it'd be north of 10%, whereas in today it's under 7% of fund. So we obviously do trim it. I mean, what drives our decision is ultimately what we think a business is worth and the, the upside to fair value from the current share price. You know, something is a 1% position and it goes up 50%, it's 1.5%. You obviously, it's not a, you know, it's not a massive portfolio risk. You'll behave differently for when something is an 8% position in your portfolio like Nasdaq was earlier in the year and it's up by 50%. And clearly, aside from mandate issues of not going north of 10%, you would be reducing it because the upside to fair value is declining. Um, and, 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 you know, we're not contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. We're typically buying stocks when they're coming under pressure, provided we think our fair value is right, and that means we'd be buying shares as they're declining, um, and we'd be reselling them as they're uh, appreciating and coming closer to fair value. So your, your outlook for emerging markets, because they have lagged developed markets over the, the recent years, um, but over the past year they seem to have been playing a bit of catch-up. Do you expect them to, to outperform developed markets going ahead? Well, I mean, we're ultimately not index investors, so, so we're, you know, we're less uh, concerned about index or aggregate level PEs. I mean, if you look at the, av the aggregate PE of the emerging market universe, you know, it looks expensive relative to history, but that's more a function of what makes up the EM index. Ten years ago, uh, the index was dominated by lower quality commodity businesses. Today, it's uh, dominated by, by larger, better quality businesses. So that would argue for a higher um, through the cycle PE for the EM index. But what, what sort of drives us is more the upside in our portfolio, um, in that that upside to the portfolio is you know, 35 to 40 percent, which for us is very attractive uh, in the developed markets. The upside uh, of the coverage list there is, is a little bit lower. Um, so, so you know, we still think there is very good opportunities in emerging markets. And because you're selling stocks as they're approaching fair value and recycling capital into stocks that have, uh, have lagged or into stocks that have more upside, uh, you, you tend to be able to still generate alpha over meaningful periods of time by doing that. Mm. Sehok, so, you, you mentioned Brazil, you mentioned the Brazilian real, they, they, they both went against you. Are you able to mitigate currency risk? Is your mandate allow for that? Or, or do you just, you know, it, it's one of the, the, the risks of, of, of investing into emerging markets where the currencies might, might go markedly against you? 
Look, I mean, we, we obviously we we think of the upside in the shares in in dollar terms, uh, and obviously a big integral part of that is what we think the currency is worth. Now, if you want to hedge currencies like the Brazilian real, South African rand, it costs you almost double digits in some cases, and you give away a large part of your performance. And in the, in the alpha that you generate from your stock ideas can take three, four, five years to realize, and in that time you might have given away 30% in currency hedging. So what we would rather do is make sure that we limit the exposure to countries where the currency is massively overvalued. Uh, obviously, if it's undervalued, that's bonus uh, return for the fund. But if a currency is massively overvalued and we use a you know, long-term, through-the-cycle, really effective exchange rate sort of approach, uh, to identify these currencies that are massively overvalued, then, then you would, you know, if you might be 5% position, uh, if the currency was fairly valued, you, you would probably be a much smaller position if the currency is overvalued. So you manage it through position size, and that way you can avoid taking a double whammy on both the share price and, and the currency. Obviously, what happened in 2015 with the complete political meltdown in Brazil, the collapse in commodity prices uh, was quite a special event um, and, and had an outsized impact on the fund, but to a large part, uh, you know, a lot of that reversed in, in the subsequent 18 months. Mm. Well, your, your thoughts on the, on the fund, Simon, and also looking at the fee structure because um, it's 1.1% to 2.5% depending on performance, So, and, and they have been outperforming, so they have beaten the benchmark quite significantly. So do they deserve that performance fee? <laughs> my, my, my quibble with performance fees is that they don't get returned when you underperform. I, I like that, you know, th this is going to be a volatile fund. I mean, the you know, emerging markets, you've got currencies in that part, you're going to get the volatility in it. Um, but I, I, you know, we, we get emerging ex market exposure in South Africa because we are an emerging market, but then we don't typically get much other emerging market. We like, we've got South Africa and that's it. What about Russia and Brazil and, and all these other economies out there? We've got South Africa and, well, of course, China. Um, I'm not sure if they're still emerging. So I've always liked this idea of, of going to find you know, funds that give us a much broader and therefore lower risk emerging market exposure. Okay. Uh, uh, Suhail, have you been earning those uh, performance fees? Well, I think you can see, I mean, since inception, the alpha since inception um, has been quite meaningful. Uh, we, we think that given the smaller universe uh, and, the, and the approach we take that we can generate roughly 3 to 4% alpha over meaningful periods of time and in anything under anything under five years in our view is is almost irrelevant the, the this approach that we do is a very long-term focus the analysis is very long-term focused and and quite frankly i think over time you know if we don't generate alpha we'll you know you, you won't have clients um so whilst there might be some criticisms of performances you know over long periods of time if you don't rate, don't generate the alpha to justify that performance you will firstly you won't get the performances if you do um, but I think over time you'll see as an industry trend, the, the base fees will be coming down and Coronation has been quite proactive in reducing our fees across all our assets over time um, and therefore generating, um, we're charging performance fees if we generate also. And I think active managers, that's the big uh, sort of headwind over the next 10 to 15 years to, to make yourself relevant against um, index tracking funds uh, is being able to justify active management fees. You'll end up with lower base fees and, and performance fees only if you generate alpha. Uh, so, uh, you know, a typical investor should then be agnostic. If they, you know, if they invest with an active manager and he generates alpha, they benefit. And if he doesn't generate alpha, he's paid a fee uh, that is increasingly becoming closer and closer to a, to a passive investment fee. Okay. Um, can't quibble with that. Um, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. That's Sohail Silliman. He's from Coronation also. Thanks to Simon Brown from Just One Lap for his wisdom and insights. Um, see you again next week.